Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode forty-five of Poor Three Sixty. The show that covers topics of importance and the topics that are current events going on in the world. As always, I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here today. Now, if those of you who haven't listened to the show before, this show does delve into politics regularly. That is not going to be the case on this week's show. There's been a lot going on, obviously, with the whole impeachment proceedings, um, things going on with the Democratic presidential candidates, but I just got back from a... Um, a work trip, so I was very unplugged from the world around me. So I didn't really get a chance to do any um, prep leading up to that point. Um, and I tried recording yesterday, and I just had the worst case of writer's block in terms of prepping this show. I just couldn't think of something that I could. Well, but uh, luckily, my lovely wife Liz was able to uh, help me along there. So I found uh, something that I thought would be worth discussing, and I have two bits of. Semi-related news, because we're kind of dealing more with uh, entertainment-related news today. Um, There's two things I found I want to discuss before I get into kind of the the meat of the show, or the the main part. So I saw this um, before I started, about um, regarding the Justice Department and a decades-old film business regulation. So, what happened? um, This is called the... The so-called Paramount Decrees, the regulations that have governed Hollywood since the heyday of Marilyn Monroe and James Dean, are taking their final bow. The U.S. Justice Department has moved to end the long-standing consent decrees which lay out rules for the distribution and exhibition of motion pictures as a part of the department's broader effort to scrap regulations it views as obsolete. Some worry that Ash could make life more difficult for smaller theater chains and mom-and-pop movie houses that are already dealing with a challenging film market. The decrees as series of settlements entered between 1948 and 1952 made sweeping changes in the movie industry by breaking up Hollywood's monopoly on production, distribution, and exhibition. Those settlements followed a landmark Supreme Court case in which the justice found the studios had illegally conspired to fix prices and monopolize the distribution and theatrical markets. The Interjust Division will soon ask the court to toss the decrees except for a two-year sunset period on ban of certain practices. Macon Del Rame, the Justice Department's top antitrust official, said during Monday's remarks at an American Bar Association conference in Washington, D.C. As the movie industry goes through more changes with technological innovation... With new streaming businesses and new business models, it is our hope that the termination of the Paramount Decrees clears the way for consumer-friendly innovation, according to a transcript of his prepared speech. The termination of these arrangements have made a focus for Delarm since he joined the Department of Justice. As he looks to get rid of regulations he believes are no longer relevant, uh, Cornell Professor George Hay, former chief economist at DOJ and Trust Division, said, I think he's convinced that the movie industry has changed enough. The department opened its review of the film business regulations in August 2018, suggesting the rules were antiquated. When the regulations were enacted, movie theaters had a single screen that could be dominated by one studio in a geographic area, the department said. Today, cities have multiple competing cinemas, with many screens populated by movies from every studio. 
Consumers now have more choices when it comes to entertainment. Further, the biggest studios are owned by conglomerates that are creating streaming services to compete with Netflix. Disney just launched its Disney Plus streaming service. Warner Brothers' parent AT&T is planning to debut HBO Max in May. The review raised concerns about among smaller theater owners who are struggling to survive in a consolidated industry that is increasingly dominated by a handful of films. In comments sent to the Justice Department, the National Association of Theater Owners, which represents cinema owners, said ending certain regulations could harm its members. One example is the ban on block booking, in which studios license their movies to theaters and groups, essentially telling cinemas they had to take the studio's likely flops if they wanted the hits. Abandoning the prohibition on block booking will likely reduce competition and incentivize anti-competitive behavior, the organization said during the DOJ's public review last year. Other curb practices, including entering into single license to cover all theaters in a circuit known as circuit dealing, as the tactic of granting theaters exclusive access to movies in a specific geographic radius known as clearances. The department's recent deregulatory mark moves mark a reversal from a few years ago when the government tried to aggressively enforce restrictions on such clearances, which small theater chains say allow larger companies to muscle them out. Some respectable of the GOJ's move, the decree has no harmful effect on competition and is fact provided important rules to protect competition. So David Balto, Maryland-based antitrust attorney. And I think a court is going to be quite skeptical about the DOJ action. However, the impact of the impending changes may not be as big as they appear. The rules only apply to students that were originally sued by the department in the antitrust case. According to legal experts, Walt Disney Company, currently the industry's dominant studio, was not part of the, to the litigation or the resulting settlements, for example. Companies including Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, which are now big players in film, didn't exist at the time and therefore aren't affected. The most famous result of the Paramount decree was that studios that owned cinemas were forced to divest their theaters. After that, those studios were barred from owning exhibitors in the future. However, the ban on studio owning theaters eventually thawed in the early 80s. Columbia Pictures, now Sony Pictures, acquired a minority stake in Walter Reed organization. Paramount Pictures and Warner Brothers owned the main theater chain for many years. Disney has long owned the El Capitan, which is used to show its movies and host special events. Nexus is still in the process of acquiring the famed Egyptian theater on Hollywood Boulevard from American Cinematheque. And has already started exhibiting its movies there, including Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. So kind of what does this mean? So it looks like, um, it's kind of, I think it's a bigger article than what it seems. It seems like it was just... Yeah, like they said, antiquated laws that don't apply in this ever-changing technological media conglomerate scape that we're in now. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to have any major effects. This uh, block booking seems a little uncertain. Because, you no, know, obviously, if you're in a smaller town or there's not a bunch of theaters, you sometimes just get the the blockbusters and the ones that the studio's really pushing so with this block booking, it looks like we might just get more of that, and you're not going to see those indie films that are uh, that come to the bigger cities or only to like big downtowns like Chicago, New York, LA, all of those. So it seems like it might hurt some of those smaller exhibitors from getting into the those areas. So that's the only thing I think is really being a negative. But I don't see like ne- or Disney being like, all right, you're getting all of our movies this month. Even if you don't want them. We're playing on all the screens you have. Like I don't know what could be the end result of this, but this was interesting. And speaking of uh, Disney, I kind of have another article here that I saw as well. I was kind of preparing this episode, and that involves um, a Disney Plus hacking problem. So, although a lot of you already have Disney Plus, um, obviously there's a lot of shows that 
I think people are really excited for. Uh, if you listen to JIC yesterday, they know they talked about The Mandalorian. I still haven't got Disney Plus, so I don't plan to for a while. Um, but that was uh, something I thought was pretty uh, interesting in this article is that um, they had some technical issues that involves people not able to get on uh, Disney Plus in the first place. Now it seems that Disney Plus has a hacking problem. So an investigation by ZDNet uh, found that hacked usernames and passwords for Disney Plus accounts are being offered up for sale on dark web marketplaces. And users on social media reported getting locked out of their accounts immediately after the service launched November 12th. Two individuals who spoke with ZDNet reported they used passwords associated with other accounts. If those other accounts have been compromised in the past, the Disney Plus hackers could have gained access to trying those reused passwords. But other users claimed their passwords were unique to the account, which could mean a number of other factors were at play. David O'Brien, a senior research and assistant research director for privacy and security at Harvard University, Berkman's Klein Center for the Internet and Society, told Gizmodo by phone that the easiest answer is the reuse passwords problem. People very commonly reuse passwords between sites because it's convenient. The reason there is, of course, it's hard to memorize long passwords to begin with, and it's hard to memorize a long list of long passwords, so people have to take a shortcut of just using the same password between sites they might not know when it's been compromised or not. As ZDNet noted, it's possible that the credentials were swiped with malware. It's also possible the stolen passwords are unique, but similar to previously compromised passwords. Or simply common as an easy guess, such as 123456, or ABC123, or Princess. For its part, Disney told Gizmodo that there's been no sign of security breach that would put user credentials at risk. Disney takes the privacy and security of our users' data very seriously, and there's no indication of a security breach on Disney+. The company said in a statement, the company advised users who believe their accounts have been compromised to contact its customer service. The wait times are still excessive more than a week out from its launch. When Gizmodo attempted to call today, an automated message said the expected wait time was greater than 60 minutes. Awesome. Because Disney Plus lacks multi-factor authentication, the best thing users can do to protect their logins against bad actors is using randomly generated passwords for all of their accounts. O'Brien said, and because memorizing 200 randomly generated passwords is nearly impossible for most people, a password manager is one of the best ways to ensure that the unique login remains secure. Another thing these users or anyone really should do is check Have I Been Pwned, a resource for crunching whether your credentials have been jeopardized in a data breach. If they haven't, well, consider yourself lucky, but if they have, update your logins as soon as possible. With new, unique, and randomly generated passwords, immediately change any other accounts for which you use the same passwords that breached account. Nobody gets once to get booted from their account while all these ma the Mandalorian spoilers spread like wildfire. I've thankfully not seen any Mandalorian spoilers other than the uh, the Yoda baby or the whatever the species of Yoda that is now a, a baby, even though he's like a 50-year-old baby. I, I don't know. But I thought that was kind of interesting. So definitely if you reuse your password on a lot of sites, maybe it's worth checking out or just keeping your passwords more secure. Um, but that was, those are the two articles I thought were worth bringing up in this uh, episode today. But now I want to get to something that uh, Liz and I actually saw on Friday, a movie that we've both been wanting to see, and we were kind of waiting until after uh, a wedding we went to to get a chance to go see that. So we actually saw the movie Jojo Rabbit. So if I don't know if any of you have seen a trailer for it. It is a very interesting movie, if you could look from the trailers, involving um, a, a, a Hitler youth with his imaginary friend that's also Hitler. Uh, it's a film by Taika Waititi, who um, anyone who is unfamiliar has done movies um, like What You Do in the Shadows or What We Do in the Shadows. I can't remember if it's you or we. Uh, as well as the uh, more recent Thor Ragnarok. 
So he's a very um, improvis- improvisational uh, director, writer, and this is a, a one of his more serious films, I would say. It's still very humorous, but I found it... Um, there's a lot of emotional depth to this movie. Um, I think the kid, uh, the main character, did a fantastic job for his age. He's only like 12 years old and was phenomenal. He... Um, and I found it really interesting because the movie does delve into um, kind of the height of of um, Hitler's reign during the Third Reich and a uh, boy who's very committed to the cause. You know, he's playing a ten year old kid. He's really ready to be like in Hitler's secret security, and he went to a training camp. And it's just he really had a very um, interesting experience. And uh, his dad's no longer in the picture. He's um, as far as he knows, he's off fighting. Uh, he lives with his mom in their house, and uh, she's doing smart thing. And I, I might get into spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie, um, you might want to uh, hold off from continuing to listen. Um, one thing I thought was interesting um, is that we've seen a lot in recent um, recent years, recent months, a lot of war films, films about World War II. Um, and I thought it was interesting, so... I found an article that I think kind of sums up kind of what I felt uh, about the film. Let's get into some spoiler territory, so definitely um, be ready for that. If you've seen the movie, great. If not, you might want to jump off and revisit this episode after you've seen the film. Um, so it says, uh, why, Justice Joe Rabbit, why Jojo Rabbit is social justice filmmaking done right. Director Taika Waititi lures us into what makes us laugh and shows his true brilliance by making us cry. The Johnny Familiar Beatles tune, I Want to Hold Your Hand, runs the opening credits. We see black and white footage of screaming girls, a familiar sight anytime we hear the Fab Four. We find it so normal that it takes us a minute to realize that they are bidding us Home Gib Mir Dean Hand, and they're not screaming for John, Paul, George, and Ringo, they're screaming for Adolf Hitler. Director Taika Waititi's Nazi satire, Jojo Rabbit, pulls a fast one on the audience and never lets up. It reminds us of the human cost of Nazism. Not in historical black and white, but in brightly colored sets and catchy music. But putting us in the shoes of both victim and villain. Jojo Rabbit is fun, beautiful, and convicting uh, all at the same time. Uh, come on, Schittler, let's get a move on. If you're looking for all-out mockery of the Third Reich, Jojo Rabbit won't disappoint you. Ten-year-old Jojo Bletzer, or Betzler, played impeccably by Roman Griffin Davis. Um, I've been out for him. He is... Definitely a talent. Um, I see him sweeping a lot of the young actor awards uh, this year with all the uh, shows that uh, celebrate that. So he's an ardent but very insecure member of the Hitler Youth. So Dodo creates an imaginary best friend to overcome his insecurities, Hitler. Although initially reluctant, Watiti agreed to play Hitler himself, reasoning what better way to insult Hitler than having him portrayed by a Polynesian Jew. Watiti's unicorn-eating freck... Uh, Feckless Fuhrer purposely bears zero resemblance to the real thing. For an that took itself so seriously, Watiti's Nazi slapstick delivers a cosmic burn that stings even beyond the grave. It's theater of the absurd at its best. The burns continue with the movie's cadre of Nazi numbskulls, whether it's Fraulein Rahm, played by Rebel Wilson, proclaiming that she's had 18 children for the fatherland, or Captain Klenzendorf, played by Sam Rockwell as a drunk, washed-up, and possibly gay stormtrooper. Watiti mocks the pants off the Nazis, but all of a sudden, the rabbit learns the same lessons the world did. Hitler would not remain a joke forever. Just like in real life, 
Watiti's Nazis turn from comedy to tragedy on a dime. The human toll of the Hitler joke becomes clear when Jojo discovers that his mother, Rosie, is harboring Elsa, played by Thomasin McKenzie, great actress as well, she did such a good job in this film, uh, who's playing a uh, teenage Jewish girl. Like millions of others, Elsa and Rosie's suffering is the inevitable punchline of the great Hitler joke. As Jojo grows closer to Elsie, he learns that Jews do not have horns, nor is there an egg-laying Jew queen. The, this forces Jojo to weigh his Nazi fantasies against the realities of the two women he loves. Where Watiti really outdoes himself is the movie's bright, humanizing aesthetic. For most of the movie, we don't see drab black-and-white clothing or bombed-out cities. We see an incredibly stylish Johansson taking bike rides with her son through verdant fields. We don't hear tragic orchestral music. We hear a whimsical score in the Beatles and David Bowie. The quirky dissonance of seeing two World War-era kids dancing to Bowie's Cold War anthem Heroes offers both an accessibility and timelessness to their struggle. Jojo isn't a Nazi monster. Elsa isn't a sainted victim. They're just two kids trying to regain normalcy in a world gone mad. Because of Jojo's moms explains it to him, dancing is what free people do. Um, and for all you uh, social justice warriors out there, it's, um, it's a movie, not a sermon. So one common reaction from critics is that Jojo Rabbit isn't serious enough or doesn't give enough attention to the victims of Hitler's ideology. Indeed, having a gender sexuality and feminist studies major from Middlebury College read his dissertation on screen would definitely hit all the SJW checkboxes. But it makes for garbage art. We aren't coming to the movies to hear a sermon on the ever-shifting victim-oppressor hierarchy. We come to feel something new about what it means to a human being. Watiti delivers in a fine style. Like Robin Williams' comedic genius believes his razor-sharp awareness of the human condition. He lures us in with what makes us laugh, then shows us the true brilliance by making us cry. He leads us on the same journey the world took, at first laughing at Hitler, then too late realizing just how unfunny this joke could be. Through this journey, Watiti allows us to relate not only to the victims, but to the perpetrators. As we see the increasingly sympathetic Jojo and Captain K, we come to the inconvenient conclusion that Nazis were not some subspecies, distinct from today's woke master race. We are they, we are the ones who sat through the joke too long until it became a tragedy. Watiti's not humanizing the Nazis. Like all the best artists, he's humanizing us. He doesn't lecture, he doesn't shove it down our throats, especially in a generation with an increasingly poor grasp on Holocaust history. He makes it accessible through satire, David Bowie, and bright colors. He's an emerging master at work, and Jojo Rabbit is an absolute pleasure. Go see it immediately. This this uh, this writer has it completely right. I encourage everyone, fans of history, uh, fans of Taika Waititi, go into this movie. I think you'll be blown away by um, by how it'll make you feel. Um, definitely had its emotional beats that I was not expecting from a Taika Waititi film. And yeah, given Give him a lot more challenges, because this, this movie is great. I cannot wait to see what he does next. I know he's doing another Marvel movie, which is fine, but I think letting him play in a world he can create himself, not in a pre-established canon, I think is is his future. I don't need him tied to a franchise like that. Just give... You can do great with whatever's given, but I think let him run and play with whatever he wants, because I, I was just blown away by it. Yes, Peter. Yeah, my bird... Did not see Jojo Rabbit, but he felt like the need to, to share his two cents. Yeah, it, it was it was just such a good movie. And I, I love, the, there's another little, a younger boy who's his best friend, or his second best friend, because Hitler has the reserve spot of his best friend, 
as he says it. But there's this little uh, uh, chubby kid with glasses who's just I, I liked him a lot too. And it, kind of you see him both sides of the side. And it reminds you a lot of like a young uh, Nick, um, not Nick, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. So I, I thought it was um, I thought it was very good. Um, and actually, before um, we saw this movie, there was actually a bunch of trailers because it is a a, a bigger film. But there's two trailers that also for more movies that I really am looking forward to seeing. Um, one kind of in a, in a similar vein called A Hidden Life. It's a 2019 historical drama film written and directed by Terrence Malick. Starring uh, August Deal, Valerie Packner with both Michael uh, Nickvist and Bruno Gans in their final performances. The film depicts the life of Franz uh, Jägerstatter, an Austrian farmer and devout Catholic who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. It looks like it'll be um, a lot like what you saw with Jojo Rabbit, but without all of the humor. It's just showing uh, a person refusing to to go with the course and how he's treated because of it. And I think, I think it's kind of timely that a lot of these movies are coming out showing us um, how the world that we always think is so far in the past is actually not that far off. If you substitute, um, so it's like Jewish people for immigrants and you just, if you just move some things around, it's very easy to see how we're, there's such an easy comparison to the world we're, we're experiencing now and what, what our, our fathers and our father's fathers experienced. Uh, not all that long ago, but I, I encourage that looks like a great movie. If you, I don't know if it's one that many of you would want to see in theaters, but I encourage everyone to rent it. Uh, it's also it's also a Fox Searchlight film. I don't know if that helps anyone. Uh, they tend to do really good work, and even now they're under the Disney banner. It's uh, that one is still sticking around, and they're having a lot of good award success. And Terrence Malick is a is a proven director. Uh, I'm going to pull up his thing just to, so some people know of his. Uh, so their filmography, if you want to see it, he did um, he did uh, Badlands, The Thin Red Line, The New World, The Tree of Life. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, he's he's done a few works, a lot of big um, artistic pieces, not ones that many of you would know, but. Uh, from what I've read and heard about him, he's a he's a very well known director and definitely good encourage. Another film that uh, I've been wanting to see and was waiting for it to come out is a film called 1917. Um, it's a Sam Mendes film. Um, with a lot of big British actors in it. Um, you got Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, uh, Richard Madden, Andrew Scott, Mark Strong, Dean Charles Chapman who played uh, Toman in uh or Tommen, um in Game of Thrones and George McKay. So it's um it's actually um the film is based in part on an account told by Men told to Mendes by his paternal grandfather Alfred Mendes. So it's actually part biographical, which is cool. So premise is at the height of the First World War during spring of nineteen seventeen in northern France, two young British soldiers, uh Schofield and Blake are given a seemingly impossible mission to deliver a message which will warn of an ambush during one of the skirmishes soon after the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line during Operation uh, Albrecht. Or Albrecht? The Duke who trace against time, grazing enemy territory, to deliver the 
warning, keeping a British battalion of 600 men, which includes Blake's own brother, from walking into a deadly trap. The pair must give all their accomplished the mission by surviving the war to end all wars. So it seems to me, like, when I saw the trailer, I got a lot of vibes from both Dunkirk, which is an, uh, another war film, and Saving Private Ryan in terms of the the character and what to expect. So I'm definitely excited to see that. Um, it's really say that to come out Christmas Day, which I feel like seeing a movie about World War One is not something you want to take your family out on Christmas Day to see. But I'm paying to see that shortly after uh, I resume, maybe... Once I, once Liz and I get back from Austin, maybe we'll, uh, I don't think she's going to see it, but I'm going to venture out, um, with a friend, or if not, I'll, I'll go on my own. Um, it definitely looks like a great film. Sam Mendes, another great director. Um, and yeah, I, I think, um, there's been a lot of good war movies, and I think, um, it does like to put, um, give you that emotional connection to these larger-than-life events, and I'm, I'm all for it. I think that'll do it for this week's episode of Poor 360. It is a little bit of a shorter one, but um, I'm going to catch up with uh, the debates and everything else that's going on in current events to have a, a more jam-packed episode 46 as we continue this march towards episode 50 in the coming weeks. So that'll do it for Poor 360, episode 45 for this week. I am Andrew Poor, and you guys have a great week. You've been listening to Poor360. You can find us on the socials at Poor360 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us and all the other podcasts on our network at journeyintocomics.com or early access at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can find us on all podcasting platforms like CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many others.